It is hard to argue against the idea that the world is built upon connection. From the tiniest atoms to nature and even technology, everything in our world depends on its relationship to others. Studies into human relationships tell the incredible story of the power of connection. Positive, healthy human relationships are linked to better mental and physical health outcomes. In today's busy world, we are asked to connect to others on a regular basis, and yet there is often little understanding of the vast impacts our interactions have. Welcome to Season 2 of NFCC's Guide Through the Seasons of Mental Wellness, where we dive into some of the most common, as well as a few overlooked, relationships we experience in a lifetime. I'm your host, Tracy Lehman, and I am honored to be a part of your day. Let's get into today's episode. Relationships are the cornerstone of human health. Decades of research show that when we experience consistent, quality relationships with others, we live longer, feel better, and become more resilient to stress. However, when we don't have access to these types of relationships and are unable to create new ones, the risk to our mental and physical health change astronomically. In fact, many studies have now confirmed that loss of social support and chronic loneliness are more disastrous to our health than smoking, obesity, or other measures of health risk. Putting these facts in the modern context of a global pandemic can be quite alarming. Never before have people experienced this level of isolation. Even as we come back together, many struggle to create new social connections due to the increased anxiety and decreased social skills created by this period of separation. So what do we do? How do we help ourselves, our children, and our parents navigate social situations during periods of separation? Here to help me explore this extremely relevant conversation is NFCC's clinical director and my close friend from graduate school, Heather Timmis. Heather Timmis is a licensed marriage and family therapist supervisor who works with families, couples, and individuals ages three years and up. Heather holds a bachelor's degree in psychology from the University of Texas at Austin, as well as a master's degree in marriage and family therapy from the University of Houston Clear Lake. In addition to overseeing the clinical team at NFCC, she also supervises associate-level counselors who are pursuing their license. Heather has many years of experience helping clients work through challenges such as trauma and anxiety with traditional talk therapy, play therapy, trauma-focused cognitive behavioral therapy, and eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, also known as EMDR. She served as NFCC's lead clinician before stepping into the role of clinical director in October of 2021. Thanks for joining us, Heather. Thanks for having me. So, one thing you and I have in common is that we're both highly social and crave being around other people. Can you speak a little to how this pandemic has impacted your relationships and how you handle these new obstacles? I will definitely say it has been a challenge. Not only am I a big extrovert, I'm also an Enneagram 7. So wanting adventure and connection is a high priority on my list. Um, so the beginning of the pandemic was very, very challenging. I was used to being constantly busy, seeing people going out. So I had to really adjust. I did what everyone did and tried to use 
house party and things like that to do those virtual happy hours and get togethers, but it doesn't offer the same connection. So then, you know, I really tried to figure out ways to create those connections, like going to a park, hanging out. I would still try to kind of get those gatherings going because otherwise I did start to feel some of that loneliness. I think the best thing is I did have a partner at home. And so having at least one companion was really helpful for me because I kept constantly thinking about when I used to live alone in an apartment, this would have been such a challenge and so hard on me. Yeah. So you were able to lean into the things that you were able to be grateful for. Yes, definitely. Yeah. I had a similar, well, I had a similar experience, but I probably didn't lean into the things to be grateful for because I was home with my husband and my kids and eventually a nanny, but it's really hard working with two kids at home. And all I wanted was my friends. Um, I'm an Enneagram too. So I really like to be able to be there with people and be there for people. And I felt like I was missing out on a lot of major life moments for a lot of my close friends and relatives. And I've been seeing a lot of similar frustrations for a lot of my clients, even the ones who were introverted, even friends who were introverted, you know, in the beginning, they were fine. And they were just moving along. But eventually, I feel like this has gotten to everyone. As a counselor, what are you seeing as the impact of the pandemic on your clients, especially from this social isolation perspective? I think it is challenging on both introverts and extroverts, because everyone hits a wall at a certain point. Everyone that is extroverted needs alone time and everyone that enjoys their alone time and is introverted needs time with people to connect. One of the big differences is more the energy that you get from kind of those surface level interactions versus those deep, you know, deep relationships where you're talking more about those things that truly, truly matter. So one thing for clients that I've been seeing a lot is a lot higher rates of depression and anxiety. I think with that social isolation, one of their coping skills has been taken away from them, or at least they're not being able to use it in the same way that they have before. I also have seen a lot of people have this constant kind of survival mentality of what if I get sick? What if someone close to me gets sick? What if I get somebody else sick and I'm responsible for that? And that guilt and shame of how can I interact in a safe way and not take on that responsibility. So I've seen a lot of people really struggling with what is safe to do. And as the pandemic has gone on, there's obviously different comfort levels as far as how much to go out. But I've still seen a lot of people really struggling with how to stay safe and how to have conversations with people around their comfort zones. But definitely those anxiety levels have been a lot higher and our brains are constantly in that mode of looking for that safety and threat level around us constantly. And because of that, I think some people have isolated a lot more than they they would like to, but they don't they can't figure out a way to do it safely. So they keep isolating even more. And then I think some have gotten to the point where they chose to be around people because they couldn't handle being isolated anymore. It was leading to a lot of suicidal thoughts and feeling physically unwell. Yeah, I've seen that too. And a lot of people also just losing social skills. I find I was already seeing, I don't know if you were seeing mm-hmm. this too, but with technology and with the dependence on texting and social media and, you know, just online formats instead of having to talk to each other, that there was already a huge increase in social anxiety for face-to-face interactions, especially with people who are already prone to have social anxiety. Yes. And coming out of the pandemic, especially with my teens, 
I'm seeing that has just really thrown them for a loop coming, going back to in-person school. You know, they're just really struggling to feel, to remember how to connect, how to make friends and how to interact in person. Mm -hmm. And I think adults are struggling too. I don't think it's only kids. I think, you know, they've kind of gone into, let me focus on what I can control. And they've let a little bit of that slip because they haven't been in practice. Yeah. I agree. And I especially think if you were really worried about the pandemic or, again, were prone to anxiety coming back in, like you and I, I feel like I came back in and I was like, yes, people. Oh, my gosh. And um, I know other people would be like, you're not keeping your distance. You're, you know, would get really anxious and nervous and you could see it and you could feel it even in the interactions and it really could throw things off sometimes. Yeah. And I think there's just more of a desperation for that connection. And so it's a little more clumsy in the way that people are trying to get that. And so there might be clinginess or there might be a lot of questions or things that get overwhelming for somebody who's not used to interacting in that way. Yeah, I agree. And then also on the other side of things, when people are anxious coming out of it, having that understanding and that empathy, like regaining the ability to read people's faces and intentions and having that compassion, I think has been really important because we can get offended really easily. Like, you think I'm sick? You think I'd come here if I was sick or I didn't feel well? A lot of people get really easily offended. So there's a lot of new dynamics that are making it harder for us to connect, I feel like. Mm -hmm. And on that opposite end of people that are taking the pandemic very seriously and continue to be really strict with their boundaries around that, a lot of them are getting made fun of or bullied or, you know, people are dismissing and minimizing their feelings, which then leads them to isolate even more. Yeah. Yeah. It's another polarizing thing, like wearing masks. At my child's school, there was a lot of really intense conflict and really unkind behaviors going back and forth over wearing a piece of fabric on your face but it feels like it's more to that to a lot of, more than that to a lot of people mm -hmm. yeah so social isolation isn't a new concern this is something that has come up throughout multiple lifetimes and there's many times and ways that we can feel separated from others what are some examples of social isolation apart from the pandemic I think there's a lot of different examples. I think what I mentioned earlier, bullying, I think that's a, a big example for kids in school. A lot of times they are bullied and can't find those friends or they do have their small group of friends, but those kind of larger in social interactions lead to bullying or feeling minimized or invalidated. So they pull back and they don't connect with others or they isolate to stay safe. I think a lot of people that work from home before the pandemic, struggled with those interactions. A lot of people take it for granted having coworkers and people to interact with at a job. So I think that can lead to a lot of social isolation. Those that are getting homeschooled, making those connections. I think also just people that are insecure or unsure of themselves and how they're interacting, they might not take those steps to reach out because they feel like they're going to be judged or not have that connection be met the way they want to. Yeah, definitely. And then some other ones that came to mind for me as I was researching and preparing for this presentation, one I think about often and one, ironically, I never think about, but one is like people in nursing homes or hospital situations, people who have been separated already in a way and have lost a lot of their independence. They experience a lot of social isolation, whether that's that they struggle to socialize with the people 
in their new area, in their new residence, or if they just aren't able to for whatever disability or thing has come up. And if they're elderly, a lot of times, unfortunately, families don't visit as often. That starts to decline and they don't have the ability to reach out. And so it does become more isolating. Or if there's health issues, if they're losing their sight or hearing or things like that, it makes it a lot harder to interact. Yeah. And then the other one I saw, which this is the one I thought was ironic because I've actually been through this, is when you come home with a new baby and you're on maternity leave, you know, people are working during the week and some husbands don't even or partners don't even get paternity leave. So usually one parent is home even during adoption with these children, with a child or a baby that they're trying to figure out and learn. And it can be really lonely. In fact, there's been several interviews I've listened to about this feeling of loneliness and isolation because people just can't visit. They're working. You know, at the hospital, you get support. When you're pregnant, you get support and you're around other people. But and you're also careful because they don't have their vaccines. So you're limited in the first two months before they can get their vaccines. So you can't leave the house and go anywhere and nobody's really coming over because they really just don't have the time. People are still working. Or they think they're respecting your space. They think, oh, they're spending time bonding with a new baby. They need that alone time. Mm -hmm. And so they almost force you into that even if you're not needing that. Yeah. Yeah. So there's been lots of times this has happened that we, I think, I think this pandemic has put like a real big magnifying glass on top of social isolation because so many of us have not had to experience it, right? And now we're seeing what people who have experienced it maybe feel like, what it's like for them when they don't have access. Mm -hmm. And I wonder if there's a way to move through these social dilemmas, these social restrictions that have come up that have this anxiety and stuff that stops us from interacting and move to a place of even more compassion and even more remembering to reach out and maybe being, you know, less text message reliant and more face-to-face willing to have that interaction. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think one benefit from this pandemic, hopefully, is that people have realized the things that truly give them energy and they feel good about and what interactions are worth taking the risk for. So I would hope that some people would take that away of, okay, maybe going out to eat is more important than I thought it was. You know, I took that for granted because it was just getting food, but that social aspect of that is really important and I value that. Or maybe, you know, going to a concert, maybe that isn't as valued. That was fun, but I really miss connecting with people. So I need these one-on-one interactions. Yeah, definitely. And maybe going out to meals or going out for coffee meetings, we put our phones down now because we've had so much oversaturation of technology, I feel like, because that's how we've all been interacting for the last year and a half. Hopefully, but I also think a lot of people use that as a shield and it's a safety net. So I think a lot of people use their phones to be distracted because they're too afraid to connect fully and be totally vulnerable. Yeah, it's easier. Mm -hmm. It definitely is. Yeah. So when we're talking about social isolation and all the research I've done, I mean, it's more disastrous for our health than smoking, obesity, and other measures of health risk that we generally associate with being in poor health, with having, you know, a not a long life. Some other ones that came up was that having limited social interactions actually decreases your immune system response, decreases your the way your body processes nutrients and things. There's just so much interesting research about it that just crazy to me. The only thing I, I've ever heard consistently was that 
the number one correlate for longest who has the longest life is social support is having those connections but i've never really heard that much about the reverse of not having them why do you think that this isolation has such an impact on us i think there's a few factors so one stress stress harms your body it creates like you said you know a lack of immune response it creates a lot of health issues, you're more susceptible to certain health issues like diabetes and things like that if you have a lot of ongoing stress. And so one of the coping skills for that is social interaction and connection. And if you don't have that support network, then those things are able to take hold a little bit more. I also think that uh, when you think about trauma, that's something that is one of those predictors of if you're going to get through it, if you have that social connection. And so think about all the people that are going through trauma. And again, there's so many examples of this, but the pandemic itself is a trauma. It's a macro level trauma that we're all going through. But if you don't have that social network to get through that trauma, then it's going to have an impact on how your brain is developing and what that is causing in your body. So I mean, it makes sense that there's a lot of physical health concerns with it. Yeah. And one of the things I often think or I talk to people about often is the importance of that social connection. And there's some people who just don't understand why it's important. I think people with really bad anxiety or really bad trauma around, you know, important relationships. But what I always say is our entire world is meant for connection. I'm an attachment therapist. I care about relationships. And if you really look at it, You know, trees grow in groves together so they can protect each other, Mm -hmm. right? They strengthen each other. They protect each other from wind and storm. If you look in our brains, our neurons have to connect to other neurons. Otherwise, our brain, they kind of wither and our brain kind of prunes them away. If we look at cellular organisms or our own cells, cells cannot find a single cell organisms, which I haven't looked into that much. But outside of that, cells in general, if they don't have other cells to commune with, they die. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, everything in the biological world is really built for connection. So it kind of does really make sense that there would be such a large biological impact on not having those connections. Mm -hmm. And obviously for therapists, we talk about this a lot, but for other people, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs, when you look at that, yes, you need your basic shelter, water, food, those things. But then the next step up is belonging. And so why is that built in so strongly if it's not what we need? It is. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then when I do talks on stress resilience and I, you know, Bruce Perry, because you knew Bruce Perry before I knew Bruce Perry and his stress resilience map, his little map of in the new book, what happened to you, the map of the brain and how the brain kind of shuts down. You know, if you think about threat responses and that we are first and foremost threat response creatures that if you are in the wilderness by yourself, you are more vulnerable. And if you're injured, you're more vulnerable. And so what you want is a tribe. You want a group of people that can come together like the elephants. Have you ever seen elephants when there's like baby elephants and they all circle around, right? That's a biological imperative. And so when your your threat response is relieved by having trusted, protected people around you, So, yeah, I think putting all that together between the two of us, that makes a lot of sense that it has such a huge impact. So knowing that, how do we maintain relationships when we're separated or isolated? I think there's a few things you can do. I think one, recognizing the need 
And like I said, trying to recognize those moments that really do fill your cup, so to speak. So what are those moments that you feel the most energy from so that you can replicate those more often and ask people that you know to engage in those with you? I think a lot of it is risk-taking. You have to have a vulnerability to be able to reach out to somebody and say, I want to spend time with you. And that can be very scary for people, but it is worth it to take the risk to try to find those right people to spend time with. And that's one thing that I would definitely say is to continue that search until you find your people, because there's so many that are surrounded by They're surrounded by bodies. They're surrounded by people that are there that aren't actually there for them. They're not supportive. They're not nurturing. They're not helpful. They're not healthy people. And sometimes people put up with those connections just because it's a person in the room. So I would, I would hope that everyone can really take the risk to find the people that are going to give you what you need rather than just settling for who's around in the moment. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a lot of that comes down to. A, doing your own therapy, doing your own work, and B, I'm a huge proponent of mindfulness meditation because what I have gained from it, from my personal experience, so one of the things we learned, or I remember really profoundly from grad school, and I don't remember who said this, but it was don't give your clients things to do that you wouldn't do yourself. And so I apply that a lot. I see what works with me and try it on have other clients try it on and sometimes they still don't want to do it but at least I know that it's a possibility and with mindfulness meditation I've developed a lot of awareness a lot of that ability to kind of distance myself in a moment and see what's going on or even after the fact if I have like because I do I'm human have these big emotional reactions but creating that distance what's happening here what am I reacting to and also just having awareness of the patterns and behaviors within my relationship so that I know if someone is like manipulative or if a relationship feels one-sided or even if I feel like my side is one-sided, being able to reach out and speak to that with somebody and be like, your relationship is really important to me. And I want to know that I want you to know that you can reach out to me and support. I feel like I've been leaning on you a lot and I want you to know that I am also here for you to lean on. And I think those things are so important. And I think we also need to look at other countries because I think part of this is a societal issue is we are a very individualistic society and we reward that. We want to be seen as independent and Mm self-sufficient. And when you look at other countries that are more collective, they, they focus on the community. They focus on how can we support each other. They focus on building things into their society that support elderly, that support children, that support different groups to continue to have support. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't do that. If you're struggling, you have to figure out yourself. You have to find those resources. You have to know when and where to reach out for help. And it's not built in. You have to really find it. And so I think we could do a lot more research around other countries and how they are kind of supporting those different facets of society to make sure that that being connected is rewarded. Yeah. I agree. So many things came out. I don't even, I don't want to make this a political podcast, but America is, or has historically been who other countries try to be like, right? They model after us. And while there are systems in countries that are becoming more westernized, they are adopting more of that individualism and it's showing in these polarizing behaviors and negative interactions that we're seeing in in many westernized countries, I feel like. And I agree. I think the individualism, the not having a support system is pretty recent. It is not 
It's not something we've built ourselves for. I can't remember what the time frame I saw was, but I want to say in just the last 50 to 60 years is when we really started moving away from community mindset. And even then we had neighbors would bring over pies and cakes and, you know, you would meet each other and you would have a community. The neighborhood I grew up in, we could reach out to our neighbors. I feel like that has really quickly receded from our society. And I worry about the impact on of that on empathy. And we just really aren't meant to live on our own. Those moms that I work with that are like, well, I'm not supposed to need help. I'm supposed to be able to go back to work. Other moms do it. I've even said that other moms do it. Other people can do all these million and one things. Right. There's a movie with Sarah Jessica Parker. What's it called? Uh, I don't know how she does it. Did you see this movie? Okay. She like does everything. She's a super successful businesswoman. She does her kids projects. She has an amazing marriage, just on and on and on. And I can't even remember what the ending was, but the only thing that came across to me was I want to be Sarah Jessica Parker in that movie. I want to be the person who can do everything with no help. But also, when does she get time for herself? (laughs) Yeah. And I think that might have been the point of the movie. I'll have to go back and watch it. I think her marriage was actually not being addressed as well as maybe, maybe that's what the end was. I can't remember, but that's what stood out to me. And so, and that's what leads to so much shame and judgment on ourselves and the lack of self compassion because we think we should have it all down. You can do the job and the home life and all those things and do all the chores and it's all on you and it shouldn't have to be. Yeah. And at some point it's going to break. At some point something's going to break and it's, it's going to take its toll. Mm -hmm. Well, and what I've even heard recently is that they're anticipating that this next generation is going to be a lot of latchkey kids again, where, you know, that was very big in kind of the early eighties of kids staying at home alone and fending for themselves because their parents are both working. And so that's coming back because the expense of childcare has gotten so insane that people can't afford it. So they, they have to leave their kids at home alone. And then again, that leads to even more isolation and them feeling like they have to do things on their own and grow up too fast. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about kids like that, that maybe their parents don't have those kinds of resources and thinking about our aging parents who may be in homes or hospitals, or maybe we're just people are staying away from them to protect them. Thinking about all of these things, what what can we do to be aware of the most vulnerable people that we have relationships with and support them and help others support the vulnerable people in their lives? One, pay attention, look for those people, you know, think about that. We, we so often get caught up in our own worlds. We don't stop to look at the perspective of others in our life and what our loved ones need. And then I also think being able to ask that person what would be helpful to them. Cause we also tr- tend to make a lot of assumptions around, Oh, this person would love it if I just stopped by or dropped off a pie or did whatever. But maybe that's not what they're really looking for. Maybe they need you to take them to a hair appointment so they can feel good about themselves and sit with you and talk to you. You know, ask them what they need and check in and you be vocal about what you need to others if somebody asks you. Yeah. Mm -hmm. What do you think? I think a lot about managing resources. Something that comes up for me a lot are people like my mother-in-law who doesn't have a lot of ability, you know, to get out and socialize and having the energy and time to spend with her and also having the energy and time for my kids and and the things that I need to get done. So I really think being aware of your resources, being aware of what you're putting energy. There's a book out there about spoons. I've never read it, but I've had so many people tell me about it. 
right? And and I think that makes a lot of sense. How many spoons do you have? Are you out of spoons and trying to like, I don't mean, I don't know what the metaphor would be there, but, you know, manage your spoons. And when things are really stressful, hold on to more spoons because you need those spoons for when something else comes up. So that self-care piece is so important there, that awareness of, do I have the resources? Because otherwise, anyone asking you to check in on these vulnerable people in your life, check in on your friends, can feel really daunting and overwhelming. So managing that, figuring out healthy ways to do that, I think is really important. And maybe also kind of tapping into things that you already care about, like hobbies or events that you enjoy going to, and then put that out there. I'm already doing this thing. If you want to join, come come with me or meet people there. So you already have that instant connection. And it's a little easier to talk about something. Yeah. So I think having that, like we had a pod. I don't know. Some people are calling them bubbles. Some people are calling them pods. But we we made a pod with our neighbor and slowly added people to that as we felt more and more comfortable, as vaccines came out, all those kinds of things. And so that was really helpful. So that ability to have that direct physical interaction, but I don't want to throw technological connection under the bus either, because there is really good research on people connecting to people all over the world online and finding a place of belonging. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want to steer us away from it. Yeah, there should be, there should be some room for everything. Mm Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah. And maybe even being aware, I think I read an article about online school for schools that are just always online. They've been doing research on these and how to create that classroom connection, those group work moments, the the camaraderie and those types of things. And there were lots of really good suggestions. I think one of them said, have each kid write an autobiography and share with the class to kind of introduce themselves. Mm -hmm. But I think when you are choosing groups to be a part of online, again, we're talking about spoons here. We're talking about what are my resources? I can't just go join every group, although some of us may try to do that. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But being aware of like what this group is, what the dynamics are, how are they creating connection or are they not? Do you really not get to know anyone? Do you really not feel like your people are opening up in this group? And really just being aware of if it's meeting your needs and not or not and being okay with saying this isn't working. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that is being in touch with your own physical body sensations and emotions so that you can tell what's going on for you. Are you feeling connected? Do you have that gut feeling that something's not right here? And, you know, maybe this person isn't for me, or maybe this person has ill intentions. You know, if you are not aware of yourself, then it's really hard to open yourself up to those healthy relationships and find those people that can be helpful when you're being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I go back to that risk taking too. You know, I went back to the gym recently and something that's really important to me and has always been is I need social connection at the gym. Like that's what motivates me to work out is having somebody to work out with. And so I joined this new thing, Orange Theory. So it's one of those group exercise classes, which I love. But again, I don't have a person there. Well, the last time I went, I kind of started talking to this one girl that was next to me. And when we left, she said, hey, let's be workout buddies. And so that's been really nice, too. So but that's a risk, right? Mm -hmm. It feels really uncomfortable, especially those of us that feel that discomfort in gyms, which a lot of us do to take that risk and reach out. But it can be just so beneficial to have those connections. And also going back to the self-awareness in the spoons, like if there's something you're on the fence about that you're spending time with and you're not sure, 
when you recognize that you're running out of spoons, when you feel like your resources are thin, that's those are the signs that those are the things you can drop. Those are the things you can put away so that you can focus on yourself and preserving resources because that's what we need to manage stressful situations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My favorite place to meet people is in line. If you have to wait somewhere, somewhere for a long period of time, it's the easiest thing to turn and talk to somebody because they're also bored. And Mm -hmm. yes, we can sit on our phones all day long, but it's really nice to be able to just talk about what's going on in front of you. And that helps you practice mindfulness too, of being currently in the moment. Mm -hmm. And that's going to help improve that social connection as well. It's going to be memorable. Yeah. And I think that empathy and and awareness of others, those social skills, recognizing when somebody else is taking a risk, when somebody starts talking to you or says, oh my gosh, can you believe whatever they're saying, that's a risk. That's a a bid. In couples therapy, we call them bids, a bid for connection. And so there's an opportunity there and trying not to be dismissive or rejecting because you could be limiting yourself and you could be steering that other person away. So that awareness both internal and external, is really important. Mm -hmm. So we've talked a lot about the importance of connection and how social isolation, not always negative, but how it can create a lot of pain and suffering, especially in long-term situations, causing feelings of loneliness, depression. We can suffer from low self-esteem or anxiety. What do you think the warning signs might be for somebody who's like, I'm really struggling with this. Do I need to? Am I just being dramatic Mm -hmm. or sensitive or should I go seek help? Is this really having a detrimental effect on my mental health? How would somebody know that? I would say pay attention to what the thoughts are in your head if they're tending to skew very negative and very more in that hate talk about yourself, kind of the opposite of self-compassion. I would be I would start to feel a little concerned. I would also look at those anxiety triggers that are coming up when you think about spending time with somebody. I think a lot of people from clients that I've heard reported is if during the pandemic, you've been alone long enough that you start to get anxiety about interacting with others and knowing what to do in those situations. So if that anxiety feels like it's keeping you home or it's keeping you from reaching out, then that's exactly when you need to reach out because that's telling you that, hey, something it's, you know, become a fear and anticipation rather than a reality of what's really going to happen in that social situation. I think also just paying attention to, again, body symptoms. If you're getting sick more often, if you are having a higher level of stress more consistently, if you find yourself feeling very lonely. And there's a difference between being alone and being lonely. You can be alone for a while and feel good about it and feel kind of grounded in yourself. And then there's times where you're alone for a while and then you really feel like you deeply are missing people or you're missing a certain person. That's more that loneliness. So if you start to kind of see that more consistently, that might be a time to go seek help. Yeah. And I think cognitions will follow with that, with the loneliness piece. Things like nobody cares about me. I'm all alone. I don't have anywhere I fit. The thoughts that we have around social situations really give us a pretty good sign of what's going on inside of us. Mm -hmm. And I would also say that if you are having this anxiety, this fear, you know, you get invited out and your anxiety comes up and you choose not to, even though you are struggling and you are feeling down, if you're choosing to not do the things you used to enjoy, those are some pretty good signs too. And going to see a therapist is a safe place to start practicing, taking that risk of re-engaging with people. 
It's a place where you don't get judgment. It's a place where you can practice social skills. Well, they'll help you navigate, you know, your own social skills, your own insecurities, and start to give you some resources to re-engage in the world. Mm -hmm. One other thing to just notice is if there's drastic changes in your day-to-day life, if you are sleeping differently, eating differently, um, again, a lot more, a lot less, something you start doing things that are outside your typical personality. You find yourself snapping at other people. If you are interacting or feeling really irritated a lot, things like that. If it feels outside your norm, check in and see like, maybe this is a time to go talk to somebody. Yeah. So we hope that you guys are emerging from this and finding your way back to each other. And we hope we've given you some tools and some insight for ways of managing and navigating that and helping your kids and spouses and family members as well and getting back to taking care of each other. And if not, we are here. We offer resources at Nick Finnegan Counseling Center and referrals and um, reach out for help if you need it, if you feel distressed. There's help out there. Well, thank you so much, Heather. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to help us reach more listeners, please share it with someone you know, post about it on social media, and leave a rating or review. To see what's coming next, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Nick Finn Council, or visit our website at finnegancounseling.org. Before I go, I'd also like to thank the people who made this project possible. Our wonderful experts who joined me each episode, our production team at Three Wire Creative, our editor and production assistant, Giselle Dixon, and the amazing leadership team and supporters at Nick Finnegan Counseling Center in Houston, Texas. Until next time.